Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Hampton Stahl, who is a research associate at Critica Research. Thanks for joining us, Hampton. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about the sort of areas that you research? I research a bunch of different things, but probably the most pressing thing recently has been the way that online far-right groups create culture and organize uh, amongst themselves online. And a lot of this is through the study of memes and whatnot, specifically. You wrote a piece uh, along these lines for GNET, the Global Network on Extremism and Technology, uh, from orange to red, an assessment of the dark MAGA trend in far-right online spaces. Uh, Can you tell us what is dark MAGA? So dark MAGA is, in my opinion and the opinion of my uh, co-author Daniel Grober for that piece, is kind of a uh, most recent trend or fad among the online alt-right, so predominantly US-based but not exclusively, followers of a politics that they align with Donald Trump, but not always specific to Donald Trump or the American right. But yeah, it's kind of a, a newest iteration of that same sort of aesthetic ideological space that we've seen before. In the article, you note that some of the previous reporting on this dark MAGA trend has sort of uh, missed the mark. What isn't dark MAGA? Well, dark MAGA is not, for example, a explicit sort of political movement. It's also not something that's totally new. And the specific reporting that had happened before was actually from someone who has now uh, turned dark MAGA and considers himself a godfather of dark MAGA. So it was extremely sympathetic to the the space and the modality. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, most of the reporting before our uh, writing on it, which is more of a documentation side of things than uh, reporting ex- specifically, was just that example from the guy who was pro dark MAGA eventually. And then Know Your Meme, which doesn't really do the sort of analysis and like reading between the lines that we were looking to do. Um, it just kind of documents like where Dark Maga started and gives some insight into some of the early memes that were shared by Dark Maga. And I believe that article uh, maybe covers the first four weeks or so since the first posting of the Dark Maga sort of meme set. And ours takes it a little bit further. One thing the article brought to mind and um, the dark MAGA phenomenon in general was uh, an incident in Australia at uh, the end of 2020 where 
a former celebrity chef called Pete Evans shared an image on his, um, I think, Facebook or Instagram account, and it showed a, a butterfly, a, a caterpillar and a butterfly. The caterpillar's wearing a MAGA cap, uh, speaking to the butterfly, saying, you've changed, and the butterfly has the uh, sonnen red. And uh, Chef Pete Evans wrote, there were many different ways of interpreting this image, but it seemed to convey the movement from a kind of a more normie uh, MAGA, status as a MAGA uh, fan or, or practitioner to something a bit darker. At the same time, there was a kind of question mark hovering over exactly what the meaning was and what the author's intention was in, in posting it. Can you speak to how, I suppose it seems like looking at dark mega, it seems fairly clear that it's it's quite, it's associated with uh, violence and, and disappointment in the end of the Trump regime. But what political function do you think dark mega plays and, and means more generally? Yeah, I think this is a, a perfect example, actually. And there's a, a little bit of a notion among the you know far right online space in general that following Trump's defeat, and this is regardless of if people are Ameri- posting from America or not, the loss of Trump was something that sort of has reverberated through online far-right spaces worldwide, from places like India and South Africa and Brazil and Australia as well. So with, with this comes a... I, I hesitate to use the this term because I think it's a little clumsy and we don't really have good vocabulary for it, but there's a little bit of like this victimhood sort of narrative or, or complex that has taken over a lot of these folks. For a lot of them... The Trump, not not necessarily the presidency per se, but the his rise to power, which a lot of people tied directly to a meme war that was raged from you know 2015 through 2017. They saw a lot of hope in that, and when Trump lost at, at the polls in 2020, after that was uh, a little bit of an expression of hopelessness, um, of frustration in the system. And you know I, these these are all narratives. It, it's hard to know like how much people are actually really personally buying into them and how much is like really new of, of that feeling set. One of the main things of Dark Maga is that a lot of the initial postings were saying that the time for optics was over, that trying to play by the sort of rules of being friendly to governments and political opponents was done with. And of course, even sort of mentioning that kind of stuff and mentioning your desire to, for example, murder Democrats through meme posting and this sort of like post-ironic, weird to decipher, you have to read between the lines what the meaning is kind of thing. It, you know, these these feelings were probably already there if they're being expressed. I don't think people really go through massive transformations like that that there there are sort of tipping points that maybe cause them to talk in a different way. But a lot of t- in a lot of ways like dark maga both the posting and the memes that are created are just kind of a continuation of the alt right and the international alt right specifically. So I, I think this this butterfly meme that you're talking about is one that I've actually seen shared in Telegram chats over on this side on this hemisphere as well. You also make reference to Gaming culture, the development of this online subculture that has some roots in um, Gamergate and so on and so forth. And it seems curious that when there's a talk about optics and so on and the need to advance beyond it, there still seems to be a sense in which a lot of this activity is concentrated precisely around questions of aesthetics and, and um, you know, memeology and so on. I'm wondering if when you look at this material and you examine the relationship between it and movements, 
How do you go about determining to what extent this is, in a sense, game playing and to what extent does it lend itself to movement building and even acquiring state power? There, you know, there have been like a series of other kind of meme fads that come before Dark Maga, some that were written about pretty extensively. I guess like like one of them is uh, the White Boy Summer type posting that was happening last summer, and then the White Lives Matter movement that resulted in people showing up IRL at protest demonstrations, oftentimes to massive counter demonstrations, but uh, showing up nonetheless. And there are all kinds of honeypots around this as well, I should say, that the reason that we felt so compelled to write about Dark Maga was we were starting to see it interface with a lot of that kind of like mainstream American conservative approach, including with those who have either had or may have access to state power. I, I think like one of the the things that we're going to see a lot of writing about over here is going to be, and we've already seen some of this previewed, is uh, there's going to be a lot of writing on the dissident right and the dissident right as they're kind of being called, or in some cases kind of clumsily called uh, the new right in the U.S. They're, they've been around for a while. They've been kind of like organizing, you know, sharing ideologies, creating overlap with mainstream conservatism in some ways that are meaningful. But it's it's also interesting to see how a bunch of kind of like, I mean, admittedly pretty cringy content, like around the Stark MAGA stuff, is still overlapping with a recycling of old aesthetics from the alt-right and from some of its uh, offshoots, but also still overlapping with people who are very much in line with the sort of traditional GOP trajectory. So I'm talking about people like J.D. Vance and uh, Peter Thiel and all of that. It's interesting to see all all this mixing together, and I think that's where the real worry is. If someone is connected to a lot of really sketchy folks in the dark MAGA world and they get access to state power, what that means. One uh, practitioner of the dark MAGA aesthetic that you've noted is Paul Gosar. Can you tell us a little bit about who he is for our audience and what you saw when he employed a uh, sort of dark MAGA aesthetic in one of his posts? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of front of brain when thinking about people with access to state power who are currently interfacing. Um, so Paul Kosar is a member of the U.S. Congress from Arizona, and he has a history of being quite friendly with some pretty radical elements across a broad range of far-right actors in the U.S. So the most notable and what is often sort of written about, talked about when you talk about Paul Kosar, is his connections to the sort of broad America First or Groyper movement. So he's, he's spoken at the version of you know, the political action conference that is just for the sort of like far right, white nationalist flirting, sometimes a little bit more overt speakers. Uh, during, during a major hearing on the storming of the Capitol building, Paul Gosar missed a vote to attend an event that uh, Nick Fuentes was organizing. Nick Fuentes being the head of the movement so-called America First. Uh, He claims to be leading a movement of mostly Generation Z online fascists uh, known as the Groyper movement, though there's disagreement from people in the so-called Groyper movement as to whether or not he is their leader. It's kind of getting a little esoteric. but, uh, But in addition to working with these young fascists who, you know, wear suits and are okay saying the N-word on their shows. He's also interfaced quite 
directly with the militia movement in Arizona. A Oath Keepers affiliate in Arizona loves to claim that they've met with Paul Gosar and have given pretty extensive notes about what they talked about. And some of the paraphrasing or quotes that they've provided from Gosar are pretty concerning, given how much these groups are focused, for example, on uh, an impending civil war that they're prepared for. This post that you noted of Gosar's, it's presented a a photo of him in this uh, sort of uh, dark MAGA, black and red aesthetic, and then was talking about uh, ways to deal with the problem of illegal immigration. She concludes, you know, we have the capacity to deport 6 million a year via plane, train, and automobile. Uh, as, as a few people noted, referring to deporting 6 million was a little bit on the nose, and he did edit the post to remove that reference, which sort of made it clear that he realised that uh, that coded reference might have been a little too uncoded. H- how do they navigate that uh, that space between wanting to post these codes but without wanting to you know, get called out on them? Gosar is a really interesting case because he keeps saying these types of things, where it's something that is no longer a dog whistle. It's like a a foghorn indicating a particular politics to a very particular audience that is constantly being picked up and reported on given his level of exposure. I I, I just don't understand how these kind of things keep happening. Every, Every time that something like this happens, some journalist reaches out for comment and a PR person or someone who claims to be working there in their comms department will say, oh, this was a total coincidence. I didn't even know about this. And the Dark MAGA example is exactly the same, both on the 6 million figure, which uh, was notably tweeted out during Holocaust Remembrance Day, but also on the Dark MAGA aesthetic. He said, I had no idea what Dark MAGA was. This is the first time I've heard of it. So I don't, I don't know if it's that there's like a lot of two online fascist interns who keep working for Paul Gosar who get access to a Twitter and Gab account, or if it's something a little bit deeper. And I think Patterns are often indicative of a little bit of that deeper thing. So, yeah, it's it's been uh, that's a really worrying case for sure. It brought to mind an Australian politician who uh, is thankfully no longer with the parliament, but in his maiden speech to parliament, he referred to a. Uh, how he might deal with the problem of immigration, which was a final solution. And then, of course, oh, I, have, I had no idea that uh, people would take final solution to mean anything but uh, you know, just a, a benevolent solution. And then it emerged later that he had a number of neo-Nazis employed on his staff. I was wondering, are, are staffers within the GOP perhaps uh, driving some of this? I think it's pretty likely. I don't have any evidence on hand. And I'm working with another researcher on something similar to this question. I think I think a, sort of at the core of this is the direction that conservatives in the US are kind of going, especially when it comes from the younger side of things. Nick Fuentes, who I mentioned earlier, who runs this America First movement and is affiliated with the Groeper movement, was a attendee at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. And at the time, he was affiliated with his college's uh, chapter of the College Republicans, um, which is like a, a youth organization for basically onboarding young people into the Republican Party. The Democrats have several different iterations of it, too. At that time, he was, uh, you know, left college because of his involvement in Unite the Right and got denounced by a bunch of different college Republicans. Uh, It's sort of to be expected during that uh, climate. But I think there's something that's really underexamined with the way that a lot of like youth conservatism is operating in the U.S. and potentially around the world as well. 
where there is a, a potential for extremely far-right young folks to get access to uh, large audiences through, for example, working for a, uh, a Congress person on uh, their social media. But it, it's hard to know if it's if it's originating from those young people, from more long-term staffers, um, or from the representatives themselves. Uh, like, I, I think a, a, an example sort of pulling this back to Donald Trump is the sort of well-documented patterns and interests of uh, Stephen Miller, who was within the White House, sort of directing a lot of policy decisions from the Trump White House, uh, who in high school was the president of an organization called like the the Fascist Club or something. He says it was a joke. Maybe it was a joke. It's not a very funny one. Who sort of was writing US policy with cruelty as the point of a lot of it. So for example, the family separation policy, where uh, families seeking asylum from Central America would be split up and held in different different detention centers. That was his writing. And the whole point being that it was such a brutal experience that it would hopefully, in his view, deter people from trying to migrate to the U.S. or trying to seek asylum in the U.S. specifically. And there's all kinds of other different stuff that he has been involved in while literally having the ear of the U.S. president. So I, I don't think he'll be the last, and he's certainly not the first, but there is definitely a worry going forward, especially given that Donald Trump, I think, has a pretty good chance at winning in 2024, and who knows what he'll look like in second term. On that subject, it seems that within the Republican Party, there's relatively, or maybe I'm just not aware of it, or it doesn't receive the attention it should, but relatively little active or vocal opposition to these tendencies these fashy tendencies within the Republicans and um, on its in associated groups. And at the same time, among the Democrats, it seems a lot of the kind of um, opposition so-called is, is kind of cringy and, and ineffective. In terms of, I guess, there's, there's monitoring that goes on about these groups and, and tendencies and online expressions. What do you make of the you know potential for opposing effectively these kinds of forces on the ground and, and I guess in the halls of power? Yeah, I think some of, some of the answer to this question boils down to just how different the Democratic Party and the GOP are from a strategic angle. There's a, a lot more emphasis on individuals and this like notion of what you might call like Stuart leadership or something like that from the democratic side of things. There are things like uh, focusing on, you know, showcasing Kamala Harris, for example, as this person sort of breaking down barriers or whatever. Whereas the the GOP has a much more power oriented strategy. Just speaking generally, there's a greater attention to long term strategy among. American conservatives than there are liberals. And I think a, a really kind of awful example of this from just this past week is American conservatives have been talking about getting rid of Roe v. Wade for as long as it's existed, but especially in the last 15, 20 years. And through a lot of organizing on the topic, like this this uh, leaked opinion about uh, the impending Roe v. Wade decision, it's not something that comes out of nowhere. And the Democrats don't have the same sort of long-term planning that the conservatives in this country often sort of take on. 
And there's a number of other different examples. Uh, just comparing taking down all these different elements of policy versus the honestly just uh, kind of mess that the Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare, was. Just uh, it, it's something that's still kind of being relitigated and is really incomplete. And I, w- I was on a Obamacare plan, for example, for uh, a while when between jobs, and I was paying like 400 bucks a month for really low coverage. Which there's a, there's just like a, a really different sort of orientation around conservative organizing, which looks at these like long term strategies and seeks to deploy state power towards that end, and in some ways uh, seeks to limit state power in ways that could weaken uh, conservative activism or conservative interests. Uh, whereas Democrats don't take the the same approach. I attended the uh, what was it um, 2012 Democratic National Convention, so for Obama's second term. And, you know, this was against Romney, who, like, was a pretty uninteresting political character, I guess. Very conservative, but just kind of uninteresting, just kind of like another guy. And the amount of times that at that 2012 conference, uh, people were saying things like, they take the low road, we take the high road, like, we're the better people kind of thing, versus an interest in, like, actually making things happen from a strategic and policy standpoint was really kind of eye-opening. Hampton, you have another project, a website called Militia.watch. Could you tell us uh, why you started that? A little bit of backstory time, I guess. So I grew up, I'm I'm from the South in the US. I grew up here, I was born here, all that kind of stuff. And in 2008 and 2009, we had this lovely movement known as the Tea Party. And I it just so happened that I lived kind of in the epicenter of where Tea Party organizing happened right at the beginning. And so early on, I actually witnessed these Tea Party type mobilizations start, including people who were wearing camo and carrying uh, guns. And I was like, okay, what's up with that? It turns out that these people were the people who would become the two sort of major national militia groups, the three percenters and the Oath Keepers throughout the U.S., and so I started doing a little bit of research in maybe five years later into some of these groups, what their networks were like, what their structure was like, what kind of symbols that they used to identify themselves. Did a bunch of research into it actually at the same time as I was doing research on like rebel coalitions in Syria. So it's kind of like an interesting bit of cognitive dissonance there, or maybe not. And basically in 2016, the national media here started paying attention to these groups and uh, didn't really know how to cover them and didn't really know what they were dealing with. So I started Militia Watch as a platform to sort of release a little bit of the analysis I had been working on based on the research I had been doing, provide a little bit of documentation for those who were looking about these groups in their area, and also just kind of as a an, uh, a worthwhile but interesting side project that uh, I thought was important, or at least I thought it was going to be important. And that, that, that's a bet that unfortunately was correct, and yeah, I, I think now like half of the uh, half of the like Twitter users in the U.S. are militia experts, but um, it wasn't always the case. Yeah, I think uh, you may share that in common with a lot of our guests that are for a while. <laughs> they were quite glad that, that nobody cared what they were talking about, uh, but it's not the case anymore. How has the militia movement sort of evolved? I guess from you know there was. I suppose a lot of coverage of the militia movement in the US in the in the nineties. How has it evolved since then, and how has it evolved post Trump? So this is a uh, a point of a lot of discourse. So I'm of the position that uh, the militia movement, like many far right movements in the US, 
go through periods of great activity, and then they metastasize for a little bit. And then they come back, transformed a little bit, still kind of tied back to their their roots, so to speak. Uh, they're really active again. Something happens, and they go back underground and metastasize again. So a lot of times, analysts will lump the militia movement from the 90s in with the contemporary one. And I'm actually of the position that I think that they're they should be considered like different enough that we uh, shouldn't use the term modern militia movement for those that are post 2009. And that's the term that militias gave themselves in the nineties. And the reason here is that though there's a lot of similarities between the nineties militias and the ones post 2009, most of those movements were highly regional or location based Whereas in 2009, in part due to social media and in part due to shifting of the Overton window in general in the U.S., uh, militias took on a much more sort of national mobilization type uh, angle. Rather than having like the Michigan militia, for example, you would have the 3% movement, which provided a, a brand or a platform on which to base your militia. And within that, there were multiple national movements under the 3% ideology. The same thing is for the Oath Keepers, there's sort of like this central national core, and then the establishment of state or more local chapters within states. And a lot of that is facilitated through, I mean, literally through Facebook. I can't stress enough like how much this movement organized through, uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways, public Facebook groups uh, for everyone to see. That's where a lot of my early research was, was literally just searching militia in, in the Facebook search bar. So I think 2021, um, with the storming of the U.S. Capitol building, and specifically the response to the storming of the U.S. Capitol building, so that's both an increase in media attention and scrutiny, but also, you know, sort of the state response, FBI agents coming and knocking on people's doors, people getting charges filed against them, has forced a lot of changes in the militia movement. Another thing is the massive sort of deplatforming that happened really since the summer, late summer of 2020. A lot of these groups were on Facebook, as I said, and sort of took it for granted that they would always be on Facebook. And so when Facebook moved to ban a lot of militia groups, they suddenly lost their organizing space. And at that time, they didn't often have sort of parallel communication relays. They kind of just had Facebook. And so there was a little bit of chaos there during that time. But especially after the storming of the U.S. Capitol building, because of, I mean, honestly, like a, a, a really sort of aware and assertive online like research community that was seeking out wherever these militias would establish themselves online and going to those companies and being like, hey, one of these actors that you banned is back here with a slightly different name, and they would go offline again. So the changes that we've seen have been that they have entered another one of these periods of lower activity, of metastasizing. And it's a little unclear about what they're going to look like when they come out of this. But in the sort of immediate close past and maybe close future, the, there's still a ton of activism from folks who are involved in militias. In some cases, they're still meeting, but they're a lot more dispersed into the sort of broader American conservative waves of activism. So showing up at uh, 
like school board meetings and shouting at people over mask mandates or critical race theory or more recently grooming of uh, children. And yeah, it, it's a little clear where they're going to land. But for now, they've just kind of reverted back to conservative activism in in the way that they were pre-formation in 2009. Hampton, what's become of Carl Rittenhouse? Because I'm not sure exactly if I, my understanding was he was loosely affiliated with uh, a militia, but in some respects was uh, attending things on his own kind of steam. And obviously he became, you know, something of a celebrity. What's become of him? And, and do you think we'll see more of his kind uh, in the future? So actually my view is that Kyle Rittenhouse was not affiliated with uh, the militia movement. There was actually in the court case, no real indication that he ever interfaced with the militia call to action at Kenosha. I think where his radicalization came from was his participation in a like police youth organization where they did ride-alongs and basically got a bunch of like pro-cop propaganda put forward at them. His Facebook is full of like back the blue type stuff. Yeah. So I, I think that's kind of where the, the world that he comes out of is the, the like respect the police anti black lives matter type side of things. But after the lethal violence of his attendance at in Kenosha, he was highly celebrated by the militia movement. And actually, it was, it was a real convening point for a bunch of different militia sort of actors who were maybe ideologically different or networked differently from one another. So you saw people from the Boogaloo movement celebrating it at one end, some some Boogaloo movement adherents. You saw people from pretty much every side of the, the more patriot militia style militia movement reacting positively. And then you saw broad swath of different sort of American conservatives, whether they uh, just really hated Black Lives Matter or were really enthusiastic about the Second Amendment. He, he sort of became a hero and a figure more than anything else to a lot of these people. And I, I've actually written a little bit about Kyle Rittenhouse, like memes around Kyle Rittenhouse and that event, sort of as people were reacting. And the kind of wild thing is that he's now he's now got a Twitter account um, and from his Twitter account he often posts memes about himself so it's kind of like this weird reintegration where the the simulation of the reality is being like repeated by it, it, it's kind of gonna be confusing to get into it but it's just kind of this strange thing where someone is posting a meme about themselves doing violence after their trial acquitted them on those charges and thinking it's funny and appropriate yeah it strikes me as gauche to be honest yeah <laughs> uh, which is perhaps not the worst thing you'd say about kyle rittenhouse but uh anyway we've also seen uh, in recent months these convoys around the world and i guess traveling back and forth across america sort of mad max style is there much militia involvement in these convoy movements i think there's some but i don't think they're driving the movements i think the convoys like a lot of the sort of recent reaction in both Canada and the U.S. is kind of tied to a more mass mobilization type model. You don't need these like small groups organizing things when there's kind of an organizing poll that's put out there publicly to a broad audience and they're all kind of on board for maybe their own reasons, but there's some cohesion and unity of purpose. But there have been militia um, affiliates who have been documented among all of them. So they're, they're still involved. It's just 
I don't think they're taking a lead. And I think part of that is their deplatforming. They didn't have the, you know, the stage from which to say, hey, go do this. We're going to go do this. Uh, so much as they were consuming someone else's stage saying, hey, go do this. We're going to do this. Hampton, when you go about researching, documenting, writing about uh, dark mega militias and, and so on, what are your, how do you approach that? What are your principal ethical concerns, especially given the dangers, I suppose, associated with the oxygen of uh, what's termed the oxygen of amplification? Yeah, no, this is something that I'm very sensitive to. And the, the amount of times that I've sent the PDF of uh, Whitney Phillips' uh, <laughs> oxygen am- amplification to journalists, I, I can't count it. It's probably over 100 at this point. I mean, my reasoning here is that I have a pretty small and often very focused audience to anything that I write. For the most part, not writing in the New York Times. I'm not writing for the AP, or I guess more recently and specifically, I'm not writing for Newsweek. I'm writing for a audience of mostly people who are already kind of watching the space. And a lot of my writing is not reliant upon reaching out and getting quotes. It's more focused on documentation. And through the years that I've been uh, working on this uh, research topic, I've got enough uh, knowledge to know when something is obviously false, when people are misrepresenting their movements. So I've got that sort of contextual knowledge, which I think is a really important inclusion on anything where you're writing about these movements. They're they're not like a lot of times like militia groups would be written about as like concerned citizens who tell us that they accept members from all races, religions, creeds, whatever. And then you look at the militia uh, like roll call and it's like all white dudes, usually Gen X white dudes who uh, like post about Jesus and guns on their Facebooks. So it's something that I'm very wary of, but I hope that through my research and analysis, I'm sort of limiting that amplification aspect. Um, I did actually, before getting on the call with y'all, I just checked like Google Trends, which is a really inc- incomplete way of looking at how interesting or how interested the public is in a topic. But on Dark Maga, for example, there was this large hump of Google Trends interest that happened right when Dark Maga was becoming a thing. And then uh, Daniel and I wrote our article and our article releases like in this little valley. And then the Newsweek article happens and then search interest goes way up again. And there's there's not a whole lot of writing on this, but my, my thought is that that search int- interest often can lead to uh, new people who weren't exposed to the content, but would be interested in tagging along, it gives them exposure that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And so since ours was like pretty low exposure on the Google Trends, I think uh, we, we did a pretty good job of keeping the audience small. And uh, especially we eliminated all direct links to Dark Maga content, which is not the case for Newsweek originally. They, they had embedded tweets for people who... We're, we're posting about like the need to kill Jews and black people in the U.S. just like a click away. How handy. Yeah, I mean, they did the work for them. It, it was really sloppy work. And it's just kind of, since I've been talking to journalists, it's something I just kind of always had to deal with. Just like, please don't don't link, link to like their event if you're going to write about their event. Well, that's all we've got time for, but we'll have a few more questions with Hampton on the podcast version of the show, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash Yenna And if people want to find Hampton online, he's on Twitter at Hampton Stall. 
Well, we'll catch you next week. See you later. Bye-bye. Tell you when you're wrong Eradicate but vindicate as far as needs along Puritan work ethic maintains its subconscious edge As old glory maintains your consciousness There's a loser in my house and a puppet on a stool And a crowded way of life and a black reflecting fool Palestine, Melbourne, in remembering the Nakba at a vigil at the State Library at 12 midday on Sunday the 15th of May. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic and commemorates the displacement and ethnic cleansing of more than 700,000 Palestinians from their homes to create the State of Israel in 1948. The Nakba continues with refugees from 1948 still living in refugee camps and more Palestinians being displaced as Israeli settlements continue to be built on stolen Palestinian land. The event will include naming and acknowledging many of the towns and villages destroyed by Israel. Nakba Day Vigil, midday, Sunday, the 15th of May, on the steps of the State Library of Victoria. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.